Daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Decades long, how have China's free trade zones spearheaded trade and opening up? Foreign institutions express positive views on China's A-share market and its economic growth. The China Coast Guard says Philippines' claim about removing Chinese blocking nets at Huang'an Island is purely fabricated. Pyongyang has amended its constitution on nuclear policy, citing the need to deter U.S. provocation. You are listening to World Today, a news program with a different perspective. I'm Ge Anna in Beijing. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching Road Today. Chinese President Xi Jinping has emphasized the importance of building higher-level pilot free trade zones and urged them to lead the way in innovation and addressing challenges. He made the remarks in a recent instruction to mark the 10th anniversary of the establishment of China's first free trade zone in Shanghai. China has so far set up 21 free trade zones and the Hainan free trade port across the country. They have been instrumental in testing and implementing key reform and opening up policies over the past decade. What has been achieved? How will these free trade zones be further developed? To delve into this, joining us on the line is Liu Zhiqing, Senior Fellow of Chongyang Institute for Financial Studies at Renmin University of China. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. First of all, how have pilot free trade zones in China evolved over the past decade, and what significant policy changes or innovations have they introduced to promote reform and opening up in the country? As we know that uh, uh, FTZ in China itself is regarded as a very important innovation, especially in the policy making. As we know, China's reform and opening up has no textbook to learn, mm. and has no uh, any available uh, example in the world to learn from or to make a copy of it. That is uh, very new for China. So that's why China need uh, FTC that in order to get more experiences and to know what challenges and the problems and how to get solutions and also how to tackle all these uh, challenges we are facing. So this FTZ in the past decade played so important a role in the opening up policy and the reform, especially when China proposed a high-quality development and high-quality modernization. That's important that to show all these new policies, especially innovative policies in this new zone, in order to get some more experiences how to access in the market, for instance, how to get uh, uh, in connections with outside of China, how to go through negotiations and considerations, talks with all partners all over the world. So FTZ have these special policies and special positions in dealing with all these uh, uh, problems we are facing. Yes, as we know, the Chinese government is very cautious when the new policy is making up, we have to know what the reaction from the market, what uh, possible problem and difficulties and the challenges we are facing. So this is the big task for the FTC to experience all these new policies, especially innovative policies to be adopted. 
So, for instance, for the tax uh, reform and also for the market access requirement and also other uh, special points that are to be discussed and implemented. So this FTC is so important in China in the past decades that in order to help China to get rid of the difficulties and the more, uh, troubles that we are possibly facing, so this is the very important, effective way that for China to have FTZ that to make our reform and open up with a high quality. Have you ever visited any of those pilot free trade zones? Among these 21 free trade zones, do you have particular impressions of any of them? Could you please share in details the specific characteristics of these zones? Yeah, that's true. I, uh, maybe I have no time to give you some more detailed uh, mm. my own in- impression, but I have visited Shanghai, uh, the Free uh, Trade Zone, and Jiangsu because these two areas are my major uh, research areas. So in these two uh, free zones, we can see totally different uh, characteristics from these two points. For first, uh, from Shanghai, is more more or less in innovative policies to promote financing and even some more policies in the financing banking system and also related to the uh, ship, uh, shipment industry. So how to make this uh, market more open up to these uh, companies from outside. And also from Jiangsu and other free trade zones that they have concentrated on its own uh, advantage, for instance, manufacturing capacities and innovation in high technologies you know, for automation, even digitalization. All these areas is so clearly that in different areas, in different provinces. So my deepest impression is that the high functioning efficiency of the of the governance in this free trade zone. They have a very high management level. They have they know the problem, the very uh, deep understanding, so they can closely cooperate with uh, partners and the companies, especially for those foreign companies to be involved in this uh, free zone. So in this way, that uh, they can save a lot of time and efforts to make more uh, efficiency. So this is what I learned from this uh, uh, free trade zone, especially in Jiangsu because there are so many private companies there. So my impression that all these private companies are so satisfied with the service and high quality of management in order to get this business better implemented. This is a very high efficiency experience. Earlier in the introduction, we talked about President Xi Jinping's instruction on the free trade zones. Can you provide an overview of the key objectives and targets set by him for the development of pilot free trade zones based on his recent instruction? I think in his main consideration, I believe that President Xi is much concerned about the high efficiency, especially the high quality development, how to cooperate and coordinate these innovations with real economy to have a real result to achieve the more economic uh, achievements by this uh, free trade zone. Because we call this free trade zone as a pilot. Pilot means that it should have some 
uh, uh, unique uh, experiences and a unique uh, performance that are leading other uh, uh, areas and provinces to follow up. So especially he emphasized that this uh, management and also the uh, risk reduction and also have some more innovation that in advancing that before the uh, problem occurred, that all this uh, policy making could be worked out. So that could really great help for all these uh, new technology enterprises and how to coordinate co- with the state-owned companies and the private companies in this free zone. You mentioned President Xi's concerns. He emphasized the importance of free trade zones in breaking new ground and tackling tough challenges. Could you elaborate on the specific challenges that these zones are expected to address in the near future? I think in the near future, the free trade zone will be focused on how to make this uh, uh, policy in real reality because being the real a result for a positive result to promote the local uh, economic development as, a, as for the whole country as a whole. As we know that we have a unified market. So uh, all this uh, free trade zone experience can be spread and also used, uh, implemented in other areas. So the point is that uh, how to avoid the local barriers that we call the protectionism from province to province. All this has been really reduced and eliminated by free trade zone. And secondly, it's also very important to make the differences between Chinese companies and the foreign companies. They are equal legally, and also they have some uh, even advanced and uh, uh, preferable policies towards the foreign companies to be involved in these areas. To support them, they more, have more innovative and have more active for the business doing in China. So that's kind of a good example to create a better friendly business environment to attract more foreign companies and foreign investment. We know China's free trade zones have attracted a significant share of foreign investment. What strategies or policies have contributed to this success? And how do these zones continue to attract foreign investment in the near future, in your opinion? I think in two areas that the free trade zone has made greater progress in order to attract more foreign investment. First, there's the requirement for the foreign involvement in this free trade zone is very reliable, is very practical for the foreign companies that they can see very clearly that they can meet all these demands that they have to do in order to involve or to come in the into the free trade zone, because as we know, free trade zone has a very special uh, policy uh, preferable, that is uh, from tax uh, uh, payment or even tax-free or something. So in this way, that all these foreign companies can be easily that access to the to the market, and from this zone that, that they can come out to the market overall everywhere in China. And secondly, it's very important for the Chinese companies that not only to have cooperations with the uh, uh, foreign companies in the free trade zone, but also through this partner, they can get uh, direct contact with outside of these companies. It's also subsidies outside and also even foreign headquarters uh, outside of China. So from both sides, I think 
we find a good coordination and uh, uh, elaboration together to make all this cooperation more effective and more uh, uh, reasonable, I mean, that, and even more sustainable for both sides, for foreign companies and for Chinese side. Thanks, Zhiqing, for your time and insights. That's Liu Zhiqing, Senior Fellow of Chongyang Institute for Financial Studies at Renmin University. This is World Today. Stay with us. Welcome back to World Today. Foreign institutions have expressed positive views on China's A-share market and its economic growth. Chief China economist Rory Green at TS Lambert, a global economic and investment strategy research provider, said the company has upgraded its ratings for Chinese stocks because risk reward on these equities is improving. Meanwhile, Goldman Sachs' latest macro research report also predicts that China's economic growth will gradually increase from 3.2% in the second quarter to 5% in the fourth quarter. China's full-year growth is expected to be 5.4%. So for more on this, my colleague Zhao Yang spoke with Einar Tengen, a senior fellow at the Taihe Institute, and Dr. Zhou Mi, a senior research fellow with the Chinese Academy of International Trade and Economic Cooperation. So first of all, Aina, how attractive are Chinese equities to foreign investors? I mean, the attitude of global investors to China is complicated, and there are so many uh, global investors that are thinking about China's market are quite different. So are Chinese equities still attractive to foreign investors? No, oh, absolutely. I mean, they're, they're, the P-E ratio is half of the historical uh, level, which is around 24. Right now it's around 12. And it's uh, one third of where the U.S. market is. So, you know, going back to my earlier conversation, if you start thinking about economies uh, that are going to be positioned in the future uh, to be um, uh, manufacturing and provide services, a lot of it goes to costs. And China continues to drive its costs down. The U.S., uh, by, you know, you can see what's happening there. They're, they're driving their costs up with uh, more wage in- increases and things like that. And Euro- Europe has the same problem. So I, I definitely think that it would be this would be the time to be buying selectively into uh, those types of uh, industries, uh, which you do believe China has a bright future in. I, I, I don't know how anyone's going to overcome what uh, China has in EVs. There's so much pressure and talk about inflation. But if you put tariffs on something, you increase inflation. That means people have to spend more for uh, things that they deem necessary. And vehicles in uh, Europe and the United States are extremely necessary. So um, it's it's hard for me to figure out how the West is um, and the developed countries are going to deal with these kind of asymmetrical imbalances within their own uh, economies versus what China's been doing very regularly and uh, substantially for the last uh, 40 years. Mm-hmm. And so, Dr. Joe, several Several foreign institutions have raised their forecasts for China's economic growth and the stock returns. So what's your view for the long run? 
Yeah, when we're talking about the investment, I think that at least uh, there are two uh, areas we need to consider. The first mm. one is how can we get benefit by, inv by the investment in this market? Actually, uh, I agree with Anna's view that China's uh, 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 economy is uh, very promising and not only in the short term, but also in the middle and the long term. I think it's a kind of a fact that many investors will believe that Chinese economy is resilient and we have many more diversified or possibilities for the innovative ways of uh, development. Well, the second area, I would say that if the investors want to choose a place to invest, they may they must uh, compare with uh, different um, markets in the world. So they compare with other countries. When we're talking about that, I think that Chinese economy is much more stronger and resilient in the recent, uh, even the recent months. So it's actually a very uh, good signal for the investors to choose where to invest. Mm -hmm. As for the Chinese market, uh, Asia market, I think there are so many new markets are listed in the market. So they are providing more information, not only from the just the, the traditional one, but for the artificial intelligence, uh, new, uh, new energy uh, vehicles, or many new areas, which is a kind of very important experiment field for the investors to try to get uh, more benefits by the investment. Mm -hmm. And so Dr. Zhou, how can China further expand the investment channels to continue to attract foreign capital, do you think? In my understanding that for the investment from the foreign uh, investors, there may be uh, two ways. The first one is a direct investment. We see the FDIs in China. We have uh, uh, just uh, concluded the, the 10th anniversary of the free trade zones in China. Mm -hmm. So I think that uh, there are so many uh, new things that we can try to do more to uh, have a better openness for the for the uh, local areas, for different sectors and uh, also industries. Well, the second for the indirect investment, I still believe that in this regard, we, we have much more space to do as for the capital, uh, capital account openness and also the connection between the mainland uh, markets with uh, Hong Kong and even other countries markets. There are more connections for the foreign investment to be here, not only in the, uh, the Asia market, but also in some uh, kind of other fund. So I, I do believe that uh, if we want to attract the investors, we must believe them, uh, make them believe that uh, the market is going to be more and more open. We were not trying to do a, another direction to close our market. Well, the second is we need to have a, a very strong uh, an expectation for the market's development, for the returns, for the continuous of the policies and for the transparent, which is what Chinese government is doing and the third one, I believe, is that we should try to open more spaces for them to invest with the, the high-end technology and the new areas, the modes of the integration of the uh, software and also the hardware into a very big and uh, much wider uh, base of development. Mm. And Dr. Zhou, actually, let's talk about China's economic recovery. Looking at the August data, when it comes to the credit inflation and all the other activity, you know, data is beating the market expectations. And we are expecting the policy accumulation. We've seen a lot of policy support from China. So do you expect that uh, the policy accumulation to really support the real economy for the rest of the year? 
Yeah, I, I believe that uh, the policies are one of uh, Chinese government uh, attitudes to the market. While they have done a lot in the past uh, um, many years, and especially for the uh, first half of this year, we are trying to do more to uh, stabilize the expectation of the market. Mm. So we can see that uh, signals is getting better, and uh, it hasn't returned to the you know the, the original trend before the COVID, but it's still becoming stronger. So in the rest of this year, we still trying to make a stable and uh, continuous policies to support the development of the market by giving a very uh, transparent and open market uh, to the different investors and the stakeholders in the market. Mm. So Aina, so what do you think about the policy accumulation? Actually, the monetary policy usually takes three to six months before people see any kind of real attraction, right? Yeah, and th this is one of the issues. I mean, China's been um, somewhat cautious. Um, and part of the reason is uh, the things you do now, you're not going to see for three months. So if you just keep doing more and more, uh, in, in you know, like the U.S. did with the um, the COVID funds, you end up um, not actually helping your economy. And I think this cautious approach uh, is bearing a little bit of fruit. We've seen uh, some uh, good stable stability signs. Uh, government, uh, Chinese government, is still saying it's going to be very targeted. And uh, in terms of policies, uh, it's going to be a mixture of fiscal and monetary. Uh, they're, uh, you know, maintaining stability is the key. They're going to be doing more projects. Um, they'll probably reduce the IRR rate from the um, uh, banks to put a little bit more money there. They're targeting small, medium-sized business entities. In essence, they're doing everything they should be doing, but they're being cautious about it because as you just pointed out, you just don't know what's going to happen and and that's you know six uh, three to six months out. Mm -hmm. And I know also for the long term, according to the World Bank, actually from the year 2013 to the year 2021, China's contribution to the global growth averaged nearly 40% a year. And right now the global economy is facing some very uncertain times. So do you think China can still contribute at a high level regarding to the global growth? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it, China has a plan. You know, at, at this at this juncture, China will continue to have the upper hand because it looks at the global situation and it plans not only next year, you know, five years, ten years, but twenty, thirty years into the future. Um, and this is, you know, no better example than electric vehicles. Um, that's a perfect example. And, and it's not just there. You know, you look at 5G, 6G, factory automation, um, digital 4.0 actually being applied in the areas, digital currency, which could be um, the solution uh, to this issue about convertibility. Because once you do have that digital currency, uh, everything is trackable. And uh, there are no surprises. And if you have legitimate reasons to be sending money abroad, instead of going through a whole bunch of um, approvals, and, uh, you'll be able to do it virtually instantaneously uh, because the, the system knows exactly what you're doing and why you're doing it. Mm -hmm. And so, Dr. Zhou, do you think China can still contribute at a very high level, you know, regarding to the global growth? 
Yeah, I believe that uh, we still have the ability to do that because at least, uh, you know, we have a very strong domestic market and domestic market are playing a more important role in the recovery of the economy of China. So we have a better plan to integrate the different regions of China and to give more platform or space for the innovative phase of development. And we are trying to establish the more connections with other countries under the Belt and Road Initiative and the multilateral platform and also the regional cooperation with different kinds of trade agreements. So I believe that uh, with the integration of the resources and the establishment of new mechanisms, the cooperation and integration of the global supply chain and the industrial chains will be still be strengthened. And that is uh, definitely good for the continuous of the development. And uh, what's more, I, I believe that uh, as we mentioned that we have more talks with uh, major economies in the world and that kind of dialogues may provide better uh, a better support for the recovery of the economy, not only for us, but also for the rest of the world. That was Einar Tengen, a senior fellow at the Taihe Institute, and Dr. Zhou Mi, a senior research fellow with the Chinese Academy of International Trade and Economic Cooperation. This is World Today. We'll be back after a short break. Welcome back to Road Today with Mika Anna in Beijing. The China Coast Guard says the Philippines' assertion that it removed Chinese blocking nets at Huang'an Island in the South China Sea is purely fabricated. This response follows a statement by the Philippine Coast Guard earlier this week. They claim to have eliminated a floating barrier set up by China on the southeast side of Huang'an Island. The China Coast Guard clarified that a Philippine vessel illegally entered waters surrounding Huang'an Island without any authorization from the Chinese government. In response, it launched lawful measures including verbal warnings, route restrictions, and temporary blocking nets. The blocking nets were later removed by the Chinese side, and normal management measures were reinstated. Chinese Foreign Ministry said Huang'an Island is China's inherent territory. China has sovereignty over it and its adjacent waters, and has sovereign rights and jurisdiction over relevant waters. So for more on the development, let's have Dr. Rong Ying, Vice President and a Senior Research Fellow at the China Institute of International Studies. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Rong. Thank you for having me. It seems to be a very complicated affair. What's your overall impression of the issue? Why did the Philippines engage in what appears to be a self-staged act in this incident? Yes, it is, I think, a self-staged incident. It's also a self-amusement in the sense that uh, after the Philippine side, I think, suffered a lot. Uh, in the wake of its provocation on Renai, Jiao Renai Isles, uh, which I think uh, not uh, sort of uh, uh, be able to make any gains on that. So now, uh, instead of I mean coming ter- to terms to the reality that and the, the agreements actually uh, uh, between the two sides, 
to for peaceful negotiations and uh, dialogue. The Philippine side now make change the tactics now by creating or stirring up more troubles, uh, uh, open up a new front, which is Huangyan uh, Island. And I think uh, like the previous round of uh, sort of provocation, uh, this tactic would not uh, make any gain, except create more trouble and more tension. And that's why I think China would, on the one hand, uh, resolutely take measures to uh, safeguard its sovereignty, territorial integrity, maritime issue, uh, rights included. But in the meantime, they always call upon the Philippine side to be reasonable and also, I think, ex- ex- respond to these provocations in a, in a responsible, reasonable way so that the uh, tensions can be managed. There will be no, ro- no room or no chance to, to escalate. But Dr. Rong, the Philippines claim that Chinese blocking nets obstructed Filipino fishermen from accessing the area for fishing activities. Could you clarify the purpose and the legality of these moves from the Chinese side? Well, I think, first of all, I think according to the statement by the Chinese foreign ministry, I think these uh, uh, ships uh, the uh, uh, not actually fit ordinary. I mean, sort of uh, uh, fishing, fishing, uh, fishing tri- uh, ships. They're rather, I think, they're ships by the government, uh, Philippines government. And uh, the very purpose, as we have known, that is meant to uh, uh, want to uh, invade or want to uh, forcefully uh, going uh, went into the. Lagoon of the uh, the Huangyan Island, which I think uh, China has made it very clear. Uh, China had a uh, had a uh, sovereignty over that, and more importantly, I think the Chinese uh, mari- uh, the maritime uh, for I mean the uh, the the, uh, the law enforcement uh, I think forces has effective control. But this laying these blocking nets and other facilities. This is a uh, rather reasonable and also preventive measures to uh, for from uh, I mean, creating more more problems. I think the Philippine side should really tell the truth and more importantly understand the uh, I think the restraints that have been exercised by Chinese side and uh, stop uh, stirring up, stop provocating China. Disputes over the Huangyan Island have occasionally arisen between both sides, but there was a significant period during which both parties maintained enough reason and composure to handle the matter. What has caused the recent surge in provocations by the Philippines? Yeah, that's a good question. I think if you look at the uh, sort of the trajectory or the uh, history of China's uh, uh, I mean, the China and the Philippines. Uh, 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 I mean, the problems that they have on the question of uh, these territorial disputes, maritime issues. Uh, there's before I think 19 in the late in, uh, early before 1990 or in uh, uh, before 1997, uh, the disputes uh, were quite uh, well managed and. Uh, but it was after 1997, 
when Philippines, the Philippine side started to uh, provoke uh, China, try to uh, raise, challenge Chinese China's sovereignty over these islands, and uh, which created problems. And uh, that was the, that period uh, has been uh, lasted until I think uh, uh, 2012. That the, the incident uh, related to Huangyan Island, and afterwards, and then up to 2016. But when the uh, new the government changed, the President Duterte came to power. I think reason reasonableness come back came back, and uh, the President Duterte. Uh, agreed with China to manage this issue in a in a way to by following the commitment and agreement that had been reached. But now, after the change of the government, the the, the government president uh, Marcus Junior Marcus again, unfortunately, I think uh, are repeating the same mistake. But of course, there are many reasons behind. But domestically, I think it was still, they feel that it is a way it will benefit politically. Uh, and internationally on the diplomatic front, you see that the Philippines are now very much uh, working in concert with the United States on the question of of that. And as we have seen that uh, more uh, military basis agreements have been signed, the military and defense uh, ties have been strengthened. But I think in the end, the Philippines have to real- have to come to realization what will be the most effective way or right way to manage this system like that. All in all, I think China's position has been consistent, and China has and also resolute in terms of defending sovereign territory integrity. And also, I think in working with its disputed, uh, with its, uh, uh, its neighbors on this dispute, peaceful resolution talks, negotiations, and also in the meantime, I think uphold its positions very resolutely and firmly. Dr. Rong, very briefly, speaking of disputes arisen between both countries, the action of the United States in the South China Sea are increasing. The United States have even deployed Coast Guard ships to the South China Sea, uh, which has brought significant changes to the overall situation in the region. How do you view the reasons behind the actions of the United States and the negative impact of U.S. factors on the regional stability? I think first and foremost, the United States has an extra regional power and has nothing to do with the dispute. And it should not put its nose on the dispute, bilateral dispute or dispute between China and the Philippines. The reason why the United States, I mean, make every effort or excuse, try to in, uh, intervene um, in, the, in the dispute is is. Is because I think I said wanted wants to have an excuse to uh, I think to play up the South China issues, particularly the disputes with countries like Philippines, to contain, to pressure, to suppress China. the 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 problem is that I think the United States, for because of its uh, sort of regional and the global uh, sort of agenda, uh, make intervene in the disputes like that would not help manage or solve the disputes per se. Rather, you create more problems and more uh, sort of tensions. And in the end, that is, say, for at the, at the expenses of 
peace and stability in the region. I think many countries know very well and know clear the ultra sort of agenda, the motive of the United States. It's like saying gold is wanted to fish in the troubled water. So mm-hmm. I think this is again a, a, a kind of a background, and the, which I think uh, the regional country, the international community knows very well. And mm-hmm. the United States, as an extra regional power, really should respect. I mean, the commitment, the agreement, and the efforts of China and this uh, the, the dispute, uh, these countries that dispute, and the ASEAN as a whole for commitment to the commitment for peaceful resolution and resolve their differences through talks and negotiations. Indeed. Thanks to Dr. Rongying, Vice President and a Senior Research Fellow at the China Institute of International Studies. Korean Central News Agency reports North Korea has amended its constitution to establish a permanent nuclear force, citing the need to deter U.S. provocations. Addressing the parliament, the country's leader Kim Jong-un said it was important to accelerate the modernization of nuclear weapons in order to hold the definite edge of strategic deterrence. The amendment comes a year after Pyongyang officially approved in law the right to use preemptive nuclear strikes to protect itself. So for more on the news, let's have Dr. Yang Xiyu, Research Fellow at China Institute of International Studies. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Yang. Uh, Thank you. My pleasure. First of all, could you provide us your perspective on the recent amendment of North Korean constitution to establish a permanent nuclear force? Well, I think the latest development uh, from the legislation angle uh, shows very clearly that uh, North Korea has completely changed their long-time position from denuclearization from a permanent nuclearization uh, by... Uh, previously, the legislation now solidified further in the Constitution. Uh, that means uh, not only uh, North Korea changed their political position, but also that will mean uh, under the new Constitution uh, framework, uh, North Korea will uh, increase all the more inputs on the nuclear arms uh, building rather than towards the denuclearization. Mm-hmm. That will not only affect North Korea's uh, uh, military, de- uh, military development direction, but also will produce per- uh, profound interactions between the North and the South, as well as uh, the dynamics in the North, North, South, North, North East Asia. The country's leader, Kim Jong-un, emphasized the importance of promoting solidarity with nations opposing the United States and referred to trilateral cooperation between the United States, South Korea, and Japan as the Asian version of NATO. Uh, What has happened that led him to such a conclusion? What do you make of his remarks and its implication to the country's foreign relations and regional stability? Well, uh, it's a very key question uh, for all of the region of Southeast Asia. Uh, I think uh, the, the the previous uh, David uh, uh, David Camp uh, trilateral summit between U.S., South Korea, and Japan uh, uh, play a uh, trigger role for the confrontational uh, interactions. Uh, between not be, not between the three countries, the bloc and the North Korea, but also input uh, potential uh, uh, 
dangerous for the so-called new Cold War framework. The reason, uh, the core of the trilateral declaration from David Kemp uh, is to uh, uh, forge and strengthen the trilateral block as the one side and uh, targeting at the other uh, countries like North Korea, Russia, even China. That will force the whole dynamics in this region towards the Cold War uh, direction. In fact, the latest development of nuclearization by legislation, by constitution from Pyongyang is a reaction, not a single action. It's a reaction from the David, uh, from the voices and the signals sent from David Camp. Uh, so I'm afraid now the whole region uh, will sliding uh, will be sliding into a block-based uh, confrontation just because uh, one block has been set up, and the uncertainty is that one block has set up by U.S., China, Japan, uh, U.S., South Korea, Japan. But the uh, uncertainty is what what else will do uh, Russia, China, and North Korea, and some some countries else. I think China will certainly oppose the block uh, model. China will insist on the uh, uh, trying to uh, building all partnership relations with every neighboring country. Uh, when we oppose clearly and strongly the Cold War framework in this region for our shared uh, development and our shared security. Uh, unfortunately, U.S. has uh, has determined to rebuild the Cold War framework. So now it's a really uh, now we are at a crossroad. Uh, I mean the, the region as a whole, and uh, towards the new Cold War uh, framework or towards the peaceful coexistence framework. So that is uh, crossroad really relate to the fate of every country. So I think at this critical crossroad, every country should make a clear uh, thought and a clear direction uh, for the shared security or separated uh, split security. Mm -hmm. uh, I think uh, North Korea's uh, latest development in North Korea is a reaction, number one. And then number two, such a reaction uh, will probably trigger re-reaction if our whole region uh, going towards such a style, I'm afraid uh, our future will be dark. And, uh, uh, and uh, uh, by the same token, if we go to the uh, go towards the peaceful coexistence, then we will face a bright future. Dr. Yang, one last question, because on Tuesday, South Korean President Yoon Suk-yeol warned Pyongyang against using nuclear weapons uh, as so put on the first large-scale military parade in a decade uh, in a show of force. Since Yoon Suk-yeol took office, relations between North and South Korea have become more confrontational, right? How would you assess the evolution of their relationship under the current South Korean president compared to the period before his presidency? Well, uh, since, the, uh, since the new administration, I mean, led, led by uh, uh, President Inter-Yong, uh, 
I, uh, we have observed that the intergreen relation uh, has reached the lowest level uh, uh, since the last few decades. Um, uh, actually, the two Koreas has fallen a negative interaction uh, style, say, tougher, tougher, uh, tougher again, uh, tougher position again, tough position. That mm. means if the north takes the tough, uh, tough position and the south will take tougher and, uh, and vice versa. Such an interaction has uh, put both of the Koreans in a security dilemma. They each side input or increase their own security means the other will put uh, will input more. That will uh, cause uh, each other uh, more insecure rather than more secure. So such a security dilemma has been set up jointly by the uh, inter- interaction between the two. Uh, so the further the, uh, the further efforts by the South uh, opposing the North, the more efforts by the North pushing uh, into a, in the nuclearization. And uh, more nuclearization will uh, trigger more strengthening efforts for the U.S. South Korean, South Korean alliance. Such an interaction can only lead a more insecure uh, environment for both of the uh, both of the Koreans, no matter uh, how much they have put uh, for their own security. Thanks, Dr. Yang, for your time and insightful opinions. That's Dr. Yang Shiyu, Research Fellow at the China Institute of International Studies. Climate change, extreme weather events, ecosystem degradation, biodiversity loss. As our planet faces an existential threat, countries and multilateral organizations are working with increasing urgency to find solutions. Despite hurdles and setbacks, there is a growing consensus about the need for global cooperation and action. Zhou Yun sat down with Inger Anderson, Under Secretary General of the United Nations and the Executive Director of the United Nations Environment Program to discuss the challenges that China and the world face. You have previously said that climate change is bigger than anything the uh, planet Earth or human occupants have ever experienced. So what are some of the major lessons do you think we can draw from those events? And more importantly, how should we act on it? Well, first of all, we shouldn't panic. We should get focused. And I think that's one of the things that I've seen here in China, that there is no panic, but there is a focus. Um, Because what we need to do is to understand what's causing these events. And I think uh, science tells us very clearly from the IPCC, this intergovernmental panel of scientists that have been working for over 30 years, telling us that, look, the more gases, uh, CO2, methane, etc., that we're putting into the atmosphere from our human activity, the hotter it's going to get because these gases get trapped. And so the sun rays that hit the Earth get trapped inside the protective layer that protects our planet. So we want to ensure that we reduce those gases. And so that's what, why renewable energy is so important. That's why electric vehicles are so important. That's why smart buildings are so important. 
And that's what we're seeing here in China, but also across the world. Not long ago, on August the 15th, China celebrated its very first Ecology Day, in which Chinese president has emphasized uh, the vital importance of ecological conservation for the sustainable development for the Chinese nation. So how do you see this new grain drive and also on China's uh, path towards modernization, which uh, also features the harmony between humanity and nature? Well, I'm very happy to see that, and I, I love the poetry of it. You know, the green mountains, the lucid waters, waters uh, right. are silver and gold. I think that those kind of languages and those kind of words and phrases also s sort of echo with people who may not understand 1.5 GHG, da-da-da-da-da-da, all the technical language. I'm really happy about that ecological day and very pleased to see that because it shines a light for the entire nation on this issue and on the issue of ecological civilization, which is a Chinese way of saying sustainable living, a Chinese way of saying let's protect planet Earth. A Chinese way of saying, let's develop and conquer poverty, but let's at the same time do that without destroying the world. In the world as a whole, there has been this sense that we pollute our way to wealth, right? The way we conquer poverty for hundreds of years in all countries has been, you know, through a lot of pollution, and then when we're rich enough, we clean it all up. I think there's now a realization that that's not an option anymore. And the ecological day and the kind of language and principles that have come out around that very much echo this realization that there is a better way. We live in harmony with nature. We ensure that we live in a, in a pollution-free world. China has also pledged to uh, peak its carbon dioxide emissions before 2030 and achieve carbon neutrality before 2060. So what's your take on China's uh, grain development path as well as contribution in the global environmental and climate governance? Well, look, I mean, China's voice is really important. China's action at home is really important. China's action abroad in this matter is very important. I've referenced renewable energy. It's remarkable that China has uh, has made these commitments and is exceeding the commitments on renewable. Already now, um, they have bypassed the commitment they made on what they would reach by 2025 in terms of renewable. On the governance side, I would say that China has engaged in the climate talks throughout as a leading economy um, and as a large emitter that takes its responsibility. The lead negotiator, minister and special envoy, Ziyan Hua, his personal engagement is something that we uh, need to celebrate. Obviously, he does that under the guidance of the president. Really a significant lift. We need to see the world come together. Look, the G20 economies are responsible for 80% of carbon emissions and they control 84% of the world economy. So it's critical that these 20 economies make strong and uh, ambitious commitments. Some have a very long carbon trail and others have a shorter carbon trail. Mm -hmm. That's the reality, the differentiated pathways. Now, there's a climate pledge uh, that was made in Copenhagen on finance and it was supposed to be by 2020 we shall have 100 billion per year of climate finance. 
we're nearly there. It's like we're nearly at the waterline. We just, and mm-hmm. so I expect that by this COP we will hit the the hundred billion mark three years late. Actually, the main purpose of a China trip this time is attending the annual general meeting of the China Council for International Cooperation on Climate and Development. So, tell us a little bit more about the key messages that you are trying to deliver here. Well, first of all, I think I have to say that this is quite an extraordinary forum. That China has established well over 30 years ago, a little bit over 30 years ago,、mm-hmm. um, to bring in and have a conversation with global partners on policy options. And I said in in my speech at the closing that it demonstrates both a, a, a self confidence and a degree of humility when a country is willing to open up its doors and say, "Come on in and tell us what you think we should do." That is extraordinary. I know of no other country that does that.、Mm-hmm. So we are here. China is opening policies and saying, "What do you think? Give us your best advice."、Uh, This is on, actually very precious, especially at the current stage of the world. It's、right? extraordinary. It's extraordinary because there are centrifugal forces at play in the geopolitical space, which we know. But this fact. Is something that where we are not seeing the centrifugal forces these last two days. We saw bridges, we saw trust, we saw confidence. So that's extraordinary. Now my messages have been around some of the issue we touched on just now. You know, bravo to China for all this renewable energy at home as well as abroad. Can we go faster? Can we learn from China as a global community? So that's sort of on the energy side. Bravo to China for the, all the electric mobility that we are seeing.、Um, that's wonderful. As we do that, can we think about the discarded electric batteries and so on?、Uh, because we need cobalt and lithium and copper and all these platinum, precious metals. Can we think about、uh, circularity with the with the discarded e-vehicles? Get those policy in place before we discard. If you understand what I mean, so that we can already now mine the discarded instead of instead of mining for new mines.、Right. Uh, so I think being very conscious around critical minerals. The third point is: look, China、uh, has been a leader in biodiversity, and we'll get into that in greater detail. But、mm-hmm. can we now that we have an agreement? How can we do to it? Expedite its implementation. So I think these kind of topics、uh, are critical. That was Inger Andersen, Under Secretary General of the United Nations and Executive Director of the United Nations Environment Program. That's all the time for this edition of World Today with me, Anna. Thank you again for listening. Bye for now.